If you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Amos and chapter 3. the Word of God open before us this evening. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you this evening and pray, O Lord, that you would grant utterance to your servant, that I might speak as they ought to speak, as one handling the oracles of God. We pray that your word would come and perform its work in our hearts. Search us, O God, and see if there be any grievous way in us, any way that brings grief to us or grief to others, any way that has Adam's choice in it that reached beyond God for more than God and find nothing of value. There's no fullness without you, no life without you, only death and emptiness. So we pray this evening, O God, that you would come and send your Holy Spirit, pour out upon us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the true knowledge of God, that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened to know what is the hope of our calling, what is the surpassing weight of the riches of the glory of your inheritance among the saints. We offer these prayers, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Word of God, Amos chapter 3, read the whole chapter. Please take heed, this is God's Word. Hear this word that the, the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. The two walk together unless they have agreed to meet. Does a lion roar in the forest when he is no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is the trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear. The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves in the mountains of Samaria, and see the great tumults within her, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, if the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. 
I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. There's an error that has infected the church of our day, the Reformed and Presbyterian church especially, but it's in other Reformed churches as well, and it's the error of sonship. Uh, the, the idea, it, it, it's an error that overemphasizes one aspect of God's relationship with His people, that God is a Father, and we are His children, and it tends to view God as an indulgent Father who only knows how to speak words to and for His people, to comfort and to encourage them. Um, one of my mentors, Terry Johnson, in Savannah, Georgia, calls those people, especially the preachers who bring that message, he calls them the grace boys, because their message is one of grace in, in their and only grace, a grace that only knows how to wrap up people in the embrace of God, even in their sin, sin tolerated and embraced and celebrated. It's not hard to see how such of you lead inexorably if, if the church can't speak against sin in the, in the church, pretty soon everything will be tolerated and will be ordaining um, even homosexuals to gospel ministry and so forth and so on. It's a kind of a, 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 a slippery slope into error. And as I hear these men preach, their, their doctrine of sanctification only has one note. It's that note in Romans 6, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And that's true, of course. But they know not how to preach, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, or remember Lot's wife, as I've preached before, and Christ Himself preached, the Good Shepherd. They only know then how to speak to the church. They have no idea how to speak against the church. And when I hear these men preach, I, I often leave with the, the sense that they and we believe in entirely two different gods and entirely two different gospels. And if they're right, I'm not sure I know God, because the message is so different. But I look at Amos this evening, and Amos is a man who believes in the sonship of the people of God, but God's people have been chosen by God and have received tremendous spiritual privileges, privileges which Israel has been neglecting. And so, this chapter this evening represents God's Word to the Old Testament church, a word from heaven to the people of God on earth, a prophetic word. And the roots of that word come not from Amos, a kind of Maybe you might think you'd be a grumpy, negative preacher who likes preaching hellfire and brimstone. The roots of this prophecy come from God Himself. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken, notice, against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family. It's, it's a family word. God isn't de-sunning the people of God here. He's not casting them off. 
But he's dealing with them as sons, sons who are currently disobedient and defiant and rebellious, lost in transgression. And the word that God has to speak to them is a word that Amos must speak against them, against the whole family that I brought out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. The intimacy that Israel enjoys is unsurpassed. Alec Mateer, ever the probably the most helpful Old Testament commentator, certainly in the book of Amos, says, let all human history be searched. As far back as records go and beyond, among the great peoples who have won empires and changed the world, and among obscure tribes living and dying in remote isolation, no time, no place, no people except this people can register the claim, God has said, you only have I known. Only us. Only we are the people of God. You only have I known. That's the word of Psalm 1. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. It's a tender, intimate word. It's a word used for Adam knowing his wife Eve. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It's a tender, loving, um, husband-like word. Intimate. Israel alone have been beckoned into fellowship with God. It's an extraordinary privilege, and yet that privilege has been neglected, and so there's a consequence. Because you've received this privilege, God says, therefore, I, the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Material goes on and says, Sin is desperately serious among the people of God. The heathen come under condemnation for violating conscience. The people of God must therefore be trebly under condemnation, for they violate conscience, revelation, and the love which has made them what they are. Special privileges, special obligations, special grace, special holiness, special revelation, special scrutiny, special love special responsiveness. The church of God in the Old Testament and in the New cannot ever escape the perils of her uniqueness. You alone have I known. It's a word for all of us here in this room. We're members of the visible church of God. And being a member of the, of the visible church of God does not guarantee our salvation. Many will come on the last day, and Christ will say, I never knew you in a saving way, and He will cast them out. It, cannot guarantee, it will not guarantee our salvation, but it does guarantee our privilege. Children, I want you to think about that. You alone, God has brought you alone. There are Lots of children in this world are being raised in pagan households, functionally pagan households in America, in uh, the Hinduism of India and, and 
the darkness of Mohammedism in the Middle East, and they only hear the voice of God in creation and conscience, God never comes alongside them and brings to them specific, intimate promises for Israel, seek me and live. If you search for me with all of your heart, you will surely find me. Those are words for the church. They're words for me, and they're words for your parents, and they're words for you also. The waters of baptism mark you out as a special people of God, and that water of baptism um, is a mark of grace, but it can also be a mark of judgment. It can be a, a mark upon you that you belong to God, and, and in the course of time you will turn to God and be saved, but it may also be a mark of God upon you as, as you turn your heart and harden your heart to words such as this one and walk away from God, and it'll be a mark upon you like a laser designator that a special forces soldier might put on a building or a tank in, in uh, the Ukraine, a Russian tank may be coming in. It's marked out by that special mark that tells the, the rocket falling from on high where to find its mark. And there's nothing you can do, nothing you can ever do. You can't wash off the mark of baptism. You're marked out to be gods, and you will be gods in salvation, or you'll be gods, belong to God in judgment. You can't escape the claims of the covenant. God has given you grace and you can walk away from that grace. You can despise that grace, but you can't eradicate that grace. The roots of prophecy, a word from God to His unique people on earth. This book belongs to you. It's a special book that God gives to His people. It's a word from God to you, and sometimes it can be a word of God against you. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, you might think, that's the Old Testament. That's those kind of crusty old prophets in the Old Testament. But if you look at the New Testament in the book of Revelation in particular, you'll see that um, Jesus comes to the church of Revelation, the seven churches, uh, uh, churches that were existed in John's day, that he knew and preached to and preached in. But a church that's paradigmatic, I believe, for the church throughout all of the ages, a church strong and a church often weak. Five of these seven churches, you remember in Revelation 2, are standing in distinct threat from Christ of being de-churched because of their inconsistency to live up to their spiritual privileges. Notice how God signs are, how God in Christ signs like um, the prophet Amos, Revelation 2, comes to the church in Ephesus, where Timothy preached, and Paul preached, and John preached. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and are not, and find them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This is a church that's orthodox, that loves the truth and hates error, that loves good preaching and hates bad preaching, and is always parsing out theological error, and that's important. You cannot know God, you cannot serve God as you ought unless you know Him as He is, and so theological truth matters. 
When you're walking through a minefield, it matters if you know where the mines are. If you're walking through theological ideas, it's important that you know where the, where the limits are, where the errors are. And this church did. But notice Christ says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They're in love with truth, but they've fallen out of love with Christ, and Christ comes with a word against them. Or later in verse 14, Smyrna is one of the faithful churches, but um, down in Pergamum, this church that has been dwelling in a satanic city where there's much darkness, where there's been faithfulness and holding the line against Satan in many areas, and who have had martyrs raised up and killed in their midst. But Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. They've been compromising. They've been allowing other things to control them the way only God should. And one of those things has been their sexual urges. And Jesus says, I have this against you, church. And down in verse 20, the church in Thyatira, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. Here's a church that does love, but they're, they're, they are careless when it comes to who they allow to teach. And there's a lady preaching and teaching a person who should not be teaching and teaching things she ought not to be teaching, and not being careful to draw the moral lines between right and wrong, purity and impurity, chastity and profligacy. Chapter 3, verse 1, Sardis, another church, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, and strengthen what remains and what is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Again, Christ coming against His New Testament church because they become sleepy and lazy and lethargic in their walk and seem more dead than alive. And then, of course, Laodicea, the church that was always grumbling in the city of Laodicea about the water supply. It came the cold water and hot water. There's no water in the town of Laodicea. They had to pipe the water in on, on overground aqueducts, hot water from Hierapolis and cold water, I think, from Nicopolis. And they came overland, of course, and overland the hot water and the cold water was in this aqueduct being baked by the uh, Mediterranean sun. And by the time it got to Laodicea, the hot water and the cold water were both the same lukewarm. And people are always saying, I hate the water in this town. It makes me sick. And Jesus comes, and as He does in each of these churches, He picks up a, a local issue and uses it as a metaphor of their spirituality. He says, I feel about your religion the same way you feel about your water. I know your works are neither hot nor cold, or cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prophets prospered, and I need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined by fire, and so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Laodicea was famous also for its eye salve, had some of the best eye doctors in, the, in that area, and because people went there who were blind. And the town prided itself for its eyesight. And Jesus says in the church, you think you can see, but you can't. It's like this morning, you can't see what you don't want to see, and what you won't see. And so Jesus comes, and John, the faithful witness, and Amos, the famous witness, has a word, not just to the people of God, about God, but a word against the people of God, from God. If Christ were to speak against you this evening, where would it be? What word would He have against you, against us as a body, against you as a person? Where are you being careless? Where are are there huge gaps between the profession you make and the life that you live? And if you're like me, there's a a list forming in my mind of areas that need to be taken uh, to be dealt with? Are you dealing with them? Are you wanting God to deal with them? Is your heart hungering and thirsting for righteousness? That's the great difference, isn't it? In one sense, nobody's perfect, uh, Pink said, and that confession, nobody's perfect, is the hypocrite's cushion and the true saint's greatest complaint. Hypocrite sits back on the cushion. Nobody's perfect and in wrath and thinks, oh, well, we can take our ease. I'm better than him and her and, you know, worse than him and her, but I'm not, I'm not the bottom of the pack, you know, I, and they're kind of, they're happy. Nobody's perfect. Everyone's got their faults. But the true saint, and I know some of you here now are hearing that you think, oh, no, God's coming to judge me, but you're maybe some of the most faithful saints in this church. The people who are, are who need to hear this word the most are the ones who will just, it'll just flow off them like water of a duck's back. And the people who often are most zealous and most earnest, as some of you are, and you come to me and say, oh, that sermon, Pastor, I'm, I am the man, I am the woman, I, I feel there are so many inconsistencies in my life, yes, but you're longing to be free of them, you're yearning, you're striving, you're praying, you're fighting, you're mortifying the flesh. It's the sense, the true sense, greatest complaint. So, the roots of prophecy, a word from God, about God, and against even the people of God. Then, secondly, the reality of prophecy. And you have these in verse 3 down to verse 8. You have 10 cause and effect. If this happens, then that happens. If I drop something, it falls down. Can something fall down unless it has been dropped, is the idea, right? And there, they, there's 10 of them, which is a perfect number, and there's, they come in two groups, a, a group of seven and a group of three. The first group of seven cause and effect clauses um, are each pregnant with meaning. He's establishing the cause and effect. He's going to get down to the, the last kind of three great points in verse 7, 8, and 
uh, verse 7 and 8. But before that, he's got these seven cause and effect clauses. But each of them, it's, he's setting up the cause and effect rhythm. But each of these cause and effects have a hidden but very obvious meaning. First of all, do, do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Well, of course not. If we're walking together, there's been some arrangement to walk together. And I wonder, is God saying here, He's hinting at Israel, are you walking with me? I've come to meet with you, but are you meeting with me? It's a question. Are you walking with God this evening? The next two cause and effect clauses in this first group of seven have to do with a roaring lion. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing? A roaring lion. Now, of course, that's a cause and effect. Lions don't roar when they haven't caught something or are about to catch something. But if you've been paying attention to Amos's prophecy, what's God been doing? God is the roaring lion. He's been roaring in chapter two, verse one. Or chapter two, sorry, chapter one, verse two. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. He's a lion who's on the hunt for prey. And the prey of the pagan nations. But in this chapter, God is zeroing in on His own nation. Continuing that metaphor, the next two cause and effect clauses have to do with a, a, an animal that's trapped. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there's no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it's taken nothing? The Word of God is lurching up like a trap in the forest, catching um, the people of God, like a bear trap closing on a boy's ankle in the forest and shattering his tibia. It's a violent metaphor. And it points, I think, to Israel trapped in their sin and also being trapped by God's Word. And they shouldn't, their, their first instinct should not be to escape the trap, because it's a trap of mercy sent by God to wake them up for who they are and who God is. So often we hear the Word of God come against us, and we think, no, that can't be about me, and we put it to one side. We we try to convince ourselves, it's not true of me. And the the idea here is you shouldn't be like that. When the Word of God traps you, you it should lead you to call out to God for help. And then the last two is a city under threat. Is the trumpet blown in a city, and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? I'll never forget those verses are written indelibly upon my mind. Back in September the 11th, I was sitting in class uh, with Dr. Davis, and we'd, we actually were in chapter 4 of Amos, but one of the young men in the class asked Dr. Davis about this verse, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And no sooner had the young lad asked the question than the door opened and a student ran in and said, a plane has crashed into one of the, two, the twin towers in, in um, New York. 
We have in our mind, of course, a Cessna, maybe a single engine plane flying through the city on a sightseeing tour and crashed into the, into the tower. We had no idea. And after class, we went out and we saw the towers. And both of them, well, one of them was, was smoking and then the second plane hit. A sober point is, disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it. That the hand of God lies behind all of the disasters in this world, as the book of Revelation sees. And for different reasons, the disaster might be bringing some of God's people home. In that sense, it's a seal upon their salvation. It's calling them from time into eternity, the seven seals. And then you have the seven trumpets warning the world of judgment, 9-11, the hurricane Katrina coming through New Orleans. Even the disaster in Uvalde, Texas, are all warnings of a final slaughter coming upon this world when Christ comes. The man comes around to judge the world. The trumpet, like the trumpets around Jericho, warning the city of impending judgment. And then for others in, this, in, the, in that judgment, it's a bowl of wrath that ends the, the end of the day of God's patience and the beginning of the day of God's wrath. And for them, there'll be no more gospel and no more hope. So he's saying, if then. If this happens, then you know that's the reason, right? And then he comes up to these last three if-then clauses that, that surround the very nature of prophecy, the reality of prophecy. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. Why am I speaking, Isaiah says, because God has spoken to me. God has revealed His secret to me. Prophecy never comes, true prophecy never comes unless God Himself, first of all, has spoken. And then the, the third of these, that's the first, the third then has the cause and effect. The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? That's the response of the prophet. God has spoken. I must preach. That's why I felt called to the ministry. I felt God was prospering me in medicine, and the, the doors were opening, but I had this, this yearning, this hunger in my soul. I, ha- I felt compelled to preach the Word of God. As Paul says, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. Back in those days, and even today, but back in those days as I was pursuing medicine, I felt even though God was prospering my work in medicine, I felt dead to it, increasingly so. And then when I was in the pulpit, I felt alive with the Spirit of God upon me, and I felt God witness to my spirit. This is what God has made me to do, and the people of God affirmed that inner sense of call. And my halting efforts to preach was a sense that as I was preaching then, God was preaching through me. And that's one of the things I'll say, you know, to young men feeling called to the ministry— you don't ever think you go to seminary to learn to preach, yet you learn lessons in preaching at seminary. You become more skilled at the art of skinning the cat. Sorry, there I go again, cat lovers, forgive me. But you, you become more skilled. 
Back in those days, there was a limit to the number of texts. I could preach the great text that demanded a sermon. He that believeth the Son has everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God abides upon him. Or the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Those great texts that screamed for a sermon, I could handle those. Zechariah, Revelation, Isaiah, Jeremiah. No idea. I could never have made my way through those books that were too big for me, like a young pianist trying to play um, Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto. It was just too big for him. Even if his fingers can reach the notes, he's not experienced enough yet to handle the enormity of that great piece. remember hearing one of the top pianists in our school playing at a school concert. We had house competitions, and there was a house music competition every year, and we'd all do our bit, um, some better, some worse. And we, we had one of the top pianists playing in our school. He was very gifted. He was playing a very difficult piece. And the the judge of the competition was one of the, the, the members of the, of the Ulster Orchestra. And as the young lad, he played the piece flawlessly. But I remember hearing, I was sitting in the, in the, in the bleachers listening, as it were, in the stand, listening to the, just behind the judge, and heard the judge lean across to Mr. McGuffin, who was a gifted teacher of music at our school. And he said, that he played that well, but it was just too big for him. Just too big for him. And there's aspects, there's, there were aspects of the Bible that were too big for me, and I still feel that. I feel like a little boy looking into the ocean depths and saying, I can see the depths, I just can't see the bottom of so many of the texts. And seminary helped, and years of experience have helped too, right? But back then, even as I was immature, I look back at some of those sermons and think, I can't believe I said that back then. Where did I get that insight from? It was, it was given by God to me. And so, what I'm saying to you, I suppose, is if you feel called to the ministry, and as you have opportunity to speak, the acid test is, is God speaking through you now? If He's not speaking through you now, if there's not a sense that God is in you speaking through you to the people of God, you can't learn that in seminary. Seminary can't put in a man what God has left out of a man. It's one of the great faults of our day. People go to seminary who try to learn to preach. It's like a tone-deaf person trying to learn to sing. There are some things you just cannot learn, and preaching is one of them. And so, Amos is talking about the reality of prophecy. If God, God has a secret thing, He reveals it to His prophets, and when He does, they have to preach. And then in between, He has the response of prophecy from you. The reality, God is speaking. Are you responding? The lion has roared, verse 8, who will not fear? Who will not fear? God is coming, and it's an awesome thing to meet with God. Have you ever felt afraid of God? Now, I know I'm speaking this week on the fear of God at this Worldview Conference, and there's always, this, there's always two senses in the fear of God. There's, there's, there's the, a sinful fear of God, and there's a righteous fear of God, a godly fear of God. A, a sinful fear of God is always the, the, the initial. It's called sinful because it comes from sin, and, and when God first reveals His glory to us, we feel overwhelmed, like Isaiah in the, in the, in the temple when God appears, and He feels His own sin, His unworthiness, and feels He's about to die. And that fear of God would drive us from God, like Adam in the garden, hiding from God in the trees. And he said, I, I heard the sound of you coming, and I was afraid, and I hate myself. 
It's a sinful fear. It comes from sin, and it leads away from God. We try to hide from Him. That's a bad fear. But the good fear comes after pardon. Our sin's been forgiven, and we're no longer afraid of God, but we do fear Him. But that fear draws us to God in fellowship, like a moth to a flame. We're drawn into God, not driven away from God. But here these people are in, are in great um, disobedience and God is coming as a lion. He's roaring, and they ought to tremble with holy fear. Do you know what it is to tremble with holy fear before God? Or has has your doctrine of the grace of God turned the lion of God into a pussycat, declawed him, and he's fit now only to sit on the lap of frumpy old ladies drinking their tea and eating scones, or scones, I think you say. But there's, he's just a wee pussycat. If the grace of God has not taught you to tremble, I, I can't believe you've ever really known the God of grace. He's a lion. He's not just a lion. Amidst the pagan nations, he's a, he's a lion amidst his own nations. When his people are behaving more like a pack of hyenas than, than, than cubs of the lion of the tribe of Judah. The roots of prophecy it comes from God to the people of God and their privilege and the reality of prophecy. It's God coming, His Word thundering, roaring. Do you, do you, is the Bible, when you open the Bible ever, has it ever been? I mean, there are times for me I read the Bible, and it's dead to me because I feel a bit dead to it, and I'm cold and dry in my soul, and it doesn't affect me, but I can remember times. I know times now when I'm reading it, and it's alive with hands and feet. I read it, but it reads me, and it opens like a portal the vision of God, and it makes my soul tremble before Him. Yes, He's my Father, but He's my Father in heaven, and therefore I let my words be few when I come into His presence, lest He bring me into judgment, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5. It would be foolish and extremely wicked not to be afraid of God when there's reason to be afraid, when we're treasuring our sin more than we're treasuring God's Son, when we're walking away from God and despising His grace and trampling the Son of God underfoot and outraging the Spirit of grace. Not to be afraid then isn't courage. It's the highest form of madness and wickedness. And then Lastly, we see the ravages of prophecy. Verse 9 to the end of the chapter. The pagan nations are called to judge God's friends, the witness of the ravages of judgment. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt. God's calling to the Philistines, Ashdod, and to the Egyptians, 
Assemble yourselves in the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. The Philistines, the Egyptians, are called to see how bad Israel has become. Alec Matir says, to be judged by those who are known and despised as graceless and spiritually ignorant runs far beyond the indignity of being subjected to the judgment of the great but remote Assyria. Yet even this is not precisely the point Amos is making in calling on Ashdod in Egypt. Ashdod has already been before our attention, summoned by God for the very same crimes of social injustice and inhumanity now charged against Israel. Clearly, the less guilty is being made the judge of the more guilty. But at that point, Ashdod was numbered among the nations to whom special revelation from God had never come. And yet, Ashdod can be judge of the people who possess the truth. In the same way, Egypt was the opposite enslaver of others, sorry, was the oppressive enslaver of others, as Israel, more than most, had the opportunity to know. Yet, though guilty of social injustice and oppression, it could judge the people of God as being more obviously guilty than itself. Furthermore, in Egypt, Israel had experienced a particular redemption wrought by God, denied to the Egyptians, and yet again, the underprivileged Egyptians can be the judged of the privileged Israelis. The width of the judgment. Imagine how galling it would be if Nancy Pelosi, Barack Obama, and Joe Biden were called to judge the Republicans for their excessive spending. These politicians who ought to know better, but don't do better. And so, the, the Philistines and the Egyptians are called to judge Israel, the people who ought to know better and do better but haven't. The witnesses of judgment, the justice of judgment, four words, tumult, oppression, violence, robbery. These are violent words. They're fleshly words. If you turn forward in your Bibles to Galatians 5 a second, you'll see these words describe an angry people fighting against one another, oppressing one another, bullying one another, living as if the world was the only show in town. It's an Old Testament echo, tumult, oppression, violence, robbery. It's an Old Testament echo of what the flesh is, what the flesh does. Galatians 5. Remember how Paul comes to the church after speaking about the law being fulfilled in verse 14, chapter 5, as love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. What are they? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, 
enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, those who practice such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. The flesh loves to feel good and to fight with anyone who stands in its way. That's what's going on in Amos's day. Tumults and oppressions, violence and robbery. People are fighting as if all that matters is getting what they want here and now. Is that not how some of you children respond? Your parents only need to say one thing to you, and you fly off the handle in a rage of anger. That's the flesh. Where a wife to her husband, husband to a wife, you say, just, just say one thing, and you're walking around with a hair trigger of just, you're just waiting with like a double barrel shotgun cocked on a hair trigger, just waiting to give anybody who stands on your toes both barrels. That's the idea here. And such sin has become so habitual that God's people are unable to even know how to do right. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. One commentator, a man called Pussy, says, it's part of the miserable blindness of sin that while the soul acquires a quick insight into evil, it becomes at last not paralyzed only to do good, but unable even to perceive it. Blind. Trapped. The witnesses of judgment. The justice of judgment. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. God can't stand by and watch God's people consumed with fleshly, angry, bitter, resentful desires and do nothing. It's a, it's, a, it's a call to you and to me to deal with our anger before God comes and deals with us for it. And then the logic of judgment. Therefore, another verse 11, therefore, therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary, this is the Assyrians coming, 40 years later, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. Now, all of your bolt holes, all of the places you run to, will be of no use to you. And then the aftermath of judgment. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. That's devastating. A shepherd comes looking for his lost sheep, and he finds a piece of an ear and a bit of a leg. But the pieces point back to what the animal once was, a sheep. 
when God's judgment passes through Israel, all that will be left is a corner of a bed and a piece of a mattress. What's left points to the reality of what was there before, a bed, a place for sexual immorality and sleep and being a lazy and, and, and turning their ears away from the voice of God. The aftermath of judgment. In these last words, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord of hosts, that on that day I punish Israel for her transgress- his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Here are the the two places people often go to anesthetize their sinfulness. Man-made spirituality, no defense, I will punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel, the place Israel went to offer their bastard worship in Bethel and in Dan. These two places were Jeroboam I built the golden calves for worship, and they went and they, offer, they offered names, they offered worship to the God called by orthodox names, Yahweh they called Him, the God of hosts. And they offered animals and bulls and sacrifices on these altars. But It wasn't in Jerusalem where the divinely appointed place of worship was to be found. Their their worship was man-made, and it could not satisfy God. Man-made religion will not, man-made spirituality will not be a rescue on the day God comes to judge His people. It's It's a thunderclap to churches that have lost the Word of God and lost the true worship or who think that coming even to the right place, but in the wrong way, without repentance, without a heart turning from sin, that somehow just going to church is enough to satisfy. The horns of the altar were the place that was said that if you hold on to the horns of the altar, you were safe there. But the Israelites would go to the horns of the altar and find them cut off and on the ground with nothing left to hold on to. Devastating picture And then, not only will man-made spirituality be no defense against God, but man-made prosperity will be no defense against God either. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. With the neatest possible touch, one commentator says, Amos exposes the wholesale failure of their religious protection against disaster. If we translate Bethel in verse 14, we get the following interesting sequences. House of God, winter house, summer house, houses of ivory, great houses. When religion is powerless, everything is powerless. When the house of God falls, no house can stand. And so, this chapter comes. It's a sober warning. It's saying to you, have you forgotten that the God who offers Himself as your friend can turn and be your enemy? He can come not just for you, 
but he can come against you. Matthias says, we have forgotten that our God can turn and become our enemy. And with all our talk of taking care not to fall into the power of Satan, we have become blind to the much more dangerous possibility of falling out of the power of God. We dismiss it, ignore it, or forget it to our peril. Why ever is the individual believer powerless against his foes, or why is the whole church powerless? Is it because God has lost his power? No, but because we have lost God's power. It's something that we in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church have to take very seriously as our, so many of our congregations are dwindling and shrinking. What's the cause of that? Is it because the gospel's lost its power? Is it because, is it because um, God has lost His power? Or could it be because we have lost God? In the PCA in 2012, I think it was, PCA, when I joined her, used to be the fastest-growing church in America. We're growing in numbers and nickels, noses, just number, just growing. And then, I think it was around 2012, we began plateauing. And the PCA put out this big, thick, strategic plan. We must be doing something wrong. It was all this new ministry and programs we're going to bring in to try and rekindle the growth. And whenever the moderator came and was announcing this at Twin Lakes Fellowship, where I was there that, that spring, um, one of the ministers got up and said to him, I've read this document, the strategic plan, but the one thing it doesn't ask is that perhaps we've stopped growing Perhaps we're losing our numbers because we're, we've lost the favor of God. Maybe we've compromised in too many areas and lost His favor. And our, our, our plateauing growth is a sign of a deeper problem than just we're doing the wrong kind of ministry in the wrong kinds of places. Something to think about There's no defense from this God, Amos is saying. Well, that's not exactly true. The only defense from God is God Himself. No refuge from Him. There's only refuge in Him. And as the, the judgment of God is barreling down upon Israel, and they'll be swept off the map in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians, as, just as God said, it's pointing forward as they're led outside of Jerusalem, naked off, or outside of Samaria, naked off into Syria, it points forward to the day when God will take His own Son and lead Him outside the city of Jerusalem naked, to be butchered on a Roman gibbet, suspended between heaven and earth, the sun no longer willing to shine upon him as he becomes sin in the presence of the holy God and is driven out and away and far from the favor of God and becomes an object of the wrath of God, that you and I, objects of the justice and wrath of God, might become enveloped and embraced in the favor of God. Amos 3 is the only part of the story. You need the New Testament to complete it. 
the only, the only defense against God is God Himself. The only defense against judgment that should fall upon us is if that judgment would fall upon Christ. And how the angels must have gasped the day it did. And so, if you're here this evening, and like me, you realize there are many areas in your life that, it, that are not right, that there's areas where we have built defenses around our, our respectable sins, or our secret sins. Amos 3 is calling us to wake up and seek the God who's speaking against us. Don't run from Him. Don't hide from Him. There's no escape. Run to Him. Fall at His feet now in this room or this evening at your bed. Ask Him, beg Him, O oh Lord God, give me wisdom to see and to know and to do, to turn from my sins and to seek You and live, that I might find refuge, that I might have privilege of coming under the wings of Jesus as He becomes the object of God's wrath and curse, that I might become the object of His love and blessing. And Jesus, the one who spoke so much about the judgment of God, because He desires to save you from that judgment, has promised to you and to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And all who come to me are by no means cast out. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, its truth. We thank You for its power. O Lord, come, we pray this evening, and in Your mercy, O God, save us from God. We don't need to be saved just from our sins. We need to be saved by our God, from our God, that we might be saved to our God and live for Your glory in Christ.